Welcome to the World Resources Podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. I have an abundance of knowledge and a talent in the studio with me today. I have three of the authors of WRI's World Resources Report, Creating a Sustainable Food Future, a menu of solutions to feed nearly 10 billion people by 2050. It's hard for me to think of a bigger or more important challenge, and this is a magnum opus that has been a number of years in production and is based on some very complex models, but in the end comes out with a list of things that are, while challenging and difficult, actually doable. Uh, my guests are Tim Searchinger. He is the lead author of the report. Um, Janet Ranganathan, she's our vice president of science and research, and Richard Waite, who is a research associate here at WRI. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Tim, I might start with you. The report lays out three big challenges that have to be addressed uh, in order to feed the 10 billion people who are expected to be on the earth by 2050. What are those challenges? Uh, well, the first challenge is to produce more food, which on current trends would mean that between 2010 and 2050, we have to produce uh, about 56% more food to feed a larger and somewhat wealthier population. Uh, the second challenge is to do that without clearing more land, in part to protect biodiversity, in part to protect the carbon stored on land. And uh, we estimate that on business as usual, uh, the world would have to clear almost 600 million hectares, which is an area of roughly three-quarters of the continental United States. Uh, and so the, the gap, the goal, is to produce all the food without clearing all that land. And then the third uh, challenge is to do this without uh, contributing to global warming. And agriculture already contributes about a quarter of all the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And basically, it has to produce about two-thirds fewer emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, from both land use change and the agricultural production process. So the three challenges are producing 50% more food on the same land with two-thirds fewer emissions. Um, I was reading it last night. I must say the executive summary of your uh, synthesis report um, is both terrifying and inspirational. The task is absolutely massive, but uh, potentially doable. And then you you break it down uh, cleverly into uh, five courses, and uh, within each of the courses are a few menu offerings. So um, I might just um, ask Janet to introduce us to the first course. Course one, reduce growth in demand for food and other ag products. Everybody's gonna be hungry. How are we gonna reduce demand? You can tell people to eat less. Um, or differently, um, or, or, or reduce the factors that also drive other uses of the uh, land. So um, in this uh, course, we have a number of menu items. So reducing food loss and waste is one of those. About a quarter of calories between field and fork are actually wasted. So that's wasted um, food, wasted water, wasted land, wasted greenhouse gas emissions associated with producing that food. Um, another menu item under the demand side, um, the consumption side, is about shifting diets. So not all foods are equal in terms of the resources required to produce them and their environmental impact. Um, the report talks about ruminant meat, which is meat from um, goat, uh, beef, um, and lamb. Um, that has a disproportional impact on water, greenhouse gas emissions, and land related to other sources of protein, such as plant-based protein. In fact, beef is about 20 times more land and greenhouse gas intensive to produce than something like legumes or, or peas. 
Um, I might mention that two of the things that you mentioned, um, shifting to plant-based diets and reducing food loss in waste are areas where WRI has invested pretty heavily. And we're going to have a guest uh, here in the studio soon um, to talk about the uh, Better Bind Lab, which is specifically looking at um, different names to promote uh, plant-based courses. So we'll get into that in a separate discussion. Rich, I'm going to go rush to the second course because I'm a speed eater. Um, increase food production without expanding agricultural land. Does that mean we're going to have a lot more GMOs? Well, so, I mean, the single most important tool to feed the world is increasing productivity, whether it's of crops or whether it's of livestock or whether it's of fish. I mean, there's been enormous productivity gains over the past few decades, and we're going to need to see that going out into the future and ideally even accelerate those gains. So this can happen through things like improving crop breeding. Um, it could happen through things like improving soil and water management. So thinking of strategies like agroforestry, putting more trees on farms um, or, or water harvesting, and also boosting the productivity of um, meat and milk on pasture is a, is a huge and underinvested um, opportunity. There's twice as much pasture land in the world as there is cropland, um, but a lot of the research attention has focused on crops and not so much on pasture. So there's this big opportunity um, to boost the amount of meat and milk um, on, on, in, in uh, tropical pasture lands and thereby reduce pressure um, on tropical forests. And that's, As, go ahead, yeah, Tim. And, and that, that's kind of a major theme of the report, both on the consumption side and the production side, is that uh, a lot more attention needs to be paid to the production of uh, ruminant outputs, which are beef, uh, goat, and sheep outputs, uh, both in terms of holding down the consumption and in increasing the productivity of that on grazing land. And people don't focus a lot of attention on grazing land, but as Rich said, it's two-thirds of the world's agricultural land. And perhaps the single most important thing we need to do is to improve the quality of that grazing so that you can get two times as much, uh, or even three times as much uh, milk or meat output per, per acre per hectare of grazing land. As we intensify production, we make it more and more profitable to clear land. You know, if I can double the production, then I, why don't I clear more forest? Which you must have thought about this because it leads us to course three, protect and restore natural ecosystems and limit agricultural land shifting. Who's going to take that? Yeah, so that, that's kind of the wicked problem. So by mathematically, if you want to produce 50% more food without clearing more forest, you have to increase your yields by 50%. So globally, we have to do that. But uh, unfortunately, when we increase uh, productivity, we often increase the competitive advantage of that. And if you're doing that in let's say a tropical country, uh, the, the share of global production can increase. So for example, in Brazil, when they learned how to grow soybeans well, they didn't just grow soybeans for themselves, they grew soybeans for the world. And that led actually to a vast spread of millions of hectares of, of deforestation for soybeans. So the, the, the big challenge here, we, the globe has a common interest in boosting productivity everywhere. But the big challenge is that those gains in productivity have to be linked to specific governance efforts to keep, the, keep people from converting forests. So we want to use those productivity gains to save forests and other and savannas, but we, uh, not to use it to clear more forests. Which, incidentally, uh, WRI has Global Forest Watch, the premier tool for keeping track of that. Keeping track of it is one thing. Actually enforcing forest protection turns out to be a naughty problem. Janet, did you want to say something? Um, just that, you know, that 
that the, the main driver of biodiversity loss and deforestation is the expansion of the agricultural frontier. Um, so we do need to, when people talk about protecting nature for nature's sake, but actually those forests and remaining natural ecosystems provide important services that are critical to sustaining food security in the long run. So take forests, it's about carbon storage and a stable climate, which is necessary for food production, but also about regulating the water cycle. So we need to keep agriculture on the same land in order to protect those e ecosystems, to continue providing the services that we need to sustain agriculture over the long run. Yeah, and the, the, the question going forward is, can we create good models of combining uh, aid to agriculture to improve its productivity with forest protection. And we think that has to occur in national policy. So, uh, for example, low interest loans to agriculture should be coupled with forest protection, as they are at least somewhat in Brazil. And, it, and international aid programs and the efforts of big um, food companies, they should be both helping their farmers to increase their yields and uh, requiring that they not clear more land. We've come to the fish course, and uh, I like to eat fish. Uh, I pay attention to fish, but I also, you know, I'm not an expert the way that um, Rich is, but my sense is that fisheries around the world are collapsing, that aquaculture is filled with environmental problems, um, and as much as I would like there to be an increasing supply of sustainable fish, I'm dubious that we can actually do that. Rich, you're the fish guy, I guess. Well, I think I'm, I'm a bit more optimistic than you, Lawrence, on that. Um, there, uh, there's a, a few things to look at here. One is that looking at to the year 2050, we project nearly 60% higher um, fish demand versus uh, in 2010. So fish demand is going to continue to rise, especially across the developing world. Um, but if we look at wild fish catches, depending on what data set you believe, they either peaked in the 1990s or have been declining since then. So we are past peak wild fish. Um, and as you mentioned, about a third of the world's marine fish stocks are overfished, overharvested right now. So there's a couple things we need to do. One is we need to reduce overfishing. And, that, and to do that, we need to improve wild fisheries management. And there are tools out there to be able to do that. But then the other thing is that since the 1990s and going ahead, it's really going to be aquaculture or fish farming that's going to continue to fill that gap and and increase the global fish supply. And so the, the challenge there is to figure out how are we going to produce twice as much fish from aquaculture but do it sustainably. And there's actually a lot of commonalities with the, with, with the last course. It's all about figuring out how to produce more fish in the same ponds, basically, um, and how to do that while using less feed, um, less freshwater uh, resources, and, and lowering emissions. And a, and a part of that is going to be that uh, fish feed, so fish tend to need fish oil to grow, at least, and some fish more than others. And that's going to have to come from an alternative to, from wild fish. And that's either going to have to come from algae, or it's going to have to come from uh, um, canola or other oil seeds that have been uh, bred so they can produce fish oil. I'm reminded of a wonderful um, graphic and story that appeared on Research uh, Resource Watch, among other things, Janet is the champion for Resource Watch, uh, together with Fisheries Watch, I think it's called. Global Fishing Watch. Global Fishing Watch. We produced, uh, Janet's team produced this wonderful chart that showed uh, you know, the more advanced industrial fishing nations sending their fleets right up and beyond the uh, international boundaries and basically, I said, stealing poor people's fish 
from the off the coasts of poorer countries. Which has been connected to piracy because there's nothing left to do with your boats if there's no fish in the water. And the, the one thing I also add about fish farming is that if you compare it to all the other sources of animal protein in the world, it is relatively efficient. So fish convert feed to food at about the same efficiency as chicken and much more efficiently than beef. So like the next 50 million tons of farmed fish are going to take a lot less resources than the next 50 million tons of beef. So aquaculture, if done well, can be a good thing and, and, and can help sustainably close that food gap. I'm going to linger on fish for a minute because I'm interested. Where is it being done well? Do we have examples of sustainable fish farming? Yeah, I mean, so so it's interesting. If you look across um, aquaculture, I think about 90% of it happens in Asia, and it's so, so fish farming has been going on in China for centuries. Um, here in the U.S., we have um, some pretty efficient and, and well-run fish farms, and so it, so it really depends. I mean, there's, there's tools out there like Monterey Bay's Seafood Watch that look at whether you're talking about wild fish or farmed fish, you know, what's the fish species, where in the world is it being farmed or caught, um, and they have some pretty good science-based recommendations about whether that's a sustainable choice because it can get pretty confusing at the store. We've come to the fifth course. It's not dessert, unfortunately. You didn't put dessert on your menu. Um, reduce greenhouse gas emissions from agricultural production. Um, Maybe I'll just start on there, and then I'm going to let Tim jump in with some of the details. Um, I think we've still got a lot of work to, done, to be done, sort of getting people to think about food as um, a greenhouse gas um, mitigation strategy. People tend to think about the fossil fuel and the energy system, the industrial energy system. But the food, is, which is also an energy system, is also a significant contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. So about a quarter of global emissions today um, could rise to about 70% uh, of the budget the, in 2050 for the economy-wide allowable emissions. So um, getting people to think about not just you know, what they choose to eat, but how that food is produced is got to be a critical part of their personal actions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, just like reducing food waste. That is a greenhouse gas mitigation strategy. People wouldn't necessarily think of that as such. You know, I've been impressed. You say a lot of people don't make the connection. I think that's right. Maybe I travel in a rarefied bubble. But I do, there are things like food miles. Very, people often think about how far was this food shipped. And they're thinking more about waste. A lot of people are reducing their meat consumption. So I think that even people have never heard of the WRR. Somehow this is perking right. through into popular culture. Rich but is, is bursting to say something. And then Janet. There is something I want to say about food miles, though, which is I think it's been overemphasized in its importance. If there's two things that you could do, you know, any consumer anywhere in the world to, to try to reduce the land and greenhouse gas impact of the food that you eat, first it's minimizing the amount of food that you throw away, and the second is shifting, especially if you eat a high meat diet, away from meat and especially away from beef and lamb towards plants. Transportation, if you look across the world, um, agricultural emissions, more than 80% of them come from the production process and from land use change and only something like 6% comes from transport. So unless you're, you're buying a lot of you know, berries or seafood that have been air freighted in the day before, food miles really are a smaller contributor to your food's footprint. Yeah, the, one of the things people think of, they think the emissions in agriculture are from the energy use in agriculture. But the energy use in agriculture is a small share. The, the, most of the emissions are either from the conversion of land uh, to produce food, or they're from these two potent greenhouse gases, methane and nitrous oxide, that are actually produced by microorganisms in, in association with agriculture. So 
for example, and, and about half of those come again from, from uh, ruminant livestock. So a huge amount of emissions are produced in the stomachs of uh, methane that's produced in the stomachs of cows, sheep, and goats. And then there's a lot of emissions associated with manure uh, piles. And finally, even from uh, commercial fertilizer, uh, the biggest source of emissions, and it's not just fertilizer, but any use of nitrogen, comes from uh, the decomposition of nitrogen and it's turning into nitrous oxide in, in agricultural soils. And so these are all challenges. These are really hard things uh, to reduce greatly. And one of the things, though, that where, what kept us from uh, jumping over the cliff uh, periodically in the course of writing this report was that actually in each area, not only are there things that we can do today, but there are really promising alternatives that at least small groups of scientists have begun to identify. Uh, if, and there are compounds, for example, that keep nitrogen from turning into nitrous oxide. And there seems to be finally a compound that reduces by 30% the methane produced in the stomachs of cows. And the question is, how do we move those forward? And, and partially it's more research money, partially it's more what we call the D in R&D, which is actually figuring out how to do it. You know, you have to plan how these things work. Companies have to plan where their suppliers are going are going to, their supplies are going to come from. We don't do that in agriculture. But we're also going to need what we call flexible regulations, that unless there is some requirement that these compounds be used, these processes be used when they're cost effective, the private sector won't have any real incentive to develop them and innovate them. So, so in the end of the day, we have a big emphasis on innovation, which we think is really promising. There's a real chance that a lot of these things could be extremely cheap or even profitable in the long run, but they got to be pushed. Um, I want to come to something that I know is in the report because I read it. I'm not sure which course it falls in, but that is reduction in human fertility and the reduction in population growth rates. Because I think sometimes when people see, oh, the UN says there are going to be 10 billion people in 2050, people think, well, who says there's going to be 10 billion people? Why do we need to plan for 10 billion people? And Tim, I have heard you do this especially well. So can you talk about reductions in fertility, why it's necessary, and how to achieve it? Yeah, so the, the good news is actually that everywhere in the world uh, where you've had certain forms of social progress, in every culture, in poor countries and rich, people have voluntarily reduced their fertility rates, either close to or even below their replacement levels. So why then are we going to have uh, population growth? Well, we're going to have about a billion more people in Asia, at least from, 19, uh, from 2010, not because they still have a huge number of uh, babies today, but because they used to have a lot of babies. And as they age, and the, the population grows. There's nothing you can do about that short of going out and killing well, I, people. I don't get that. So, if so, they're born already, if they age, that doesn't increase the number no, of people. No, because they have, they have uh, as they reach their reproductive ages, they have children. And so, so, so this is sort of like a baby boom echo effect. It's, it's, a de yeah, it's called the demographic momentum. And basically, when you have a lot of, a lot of your population are children, uh, they eventually, uh, uh, but you have more children than you have middle-aged people and older people. As they age, it kind of grows, it evens out. And so you get more people. So there's nothing we can do about that. And there's nothing we can do about some population growth uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. But the one part of the world that still has really high fertility rates is sub-Saharan Africa. And the reason is threefold. Uh, they, don't have, um, they don't have the same levels of education of girls uh, into uh, lower, at least lower high school. 
Uh, they still have high infant mortality rates, which appear to cause people to have more children to compensate, and they don't have the same access to family planning. So what we need to do is essentially do three things that are really good in and of themselves. Educate girls, uh, provide access to family planning, and keep infants alive. And if we do that, then there is the prospect that the population growth rates in Sub-Saharan Africa could decline quickly, and that would have huge benefits, not just for the environment, but huge economic benefits, because countries that spend huge amounts of money just providing services for their children and trying to keep up with the infrastructure of a growing population don't have the money to spend on other things. And so it had, when countries reduce their fertility rates, uh, they tend to have an economic dividend. And so this is an example. This is something that could happen from a climate perspective is free because all of these things are en enormously beneficial in and of themselves and it's a question of mustering the political resources and governance in order to be able to make that happen. Win, win, win. Um, I want to turn, we just got a couple minutes, I'm going to ask you Janet for the maybe the most difficult question. I mean this is an incredibly compelling piece of research and analytical work. In order to make these things happen all kinds of people all around the world need to change what they do. So where's the, is it a policy lever? Is it a social movement lever? Is it private sector? Is it government? I know it's all of the above, but you think a lot about how to create change in the world. What's, what's the, the most important thing that could be done with this information? Well, I, I think the two initiatives that WRI has chosen to take on and move forward with um, are obviously important or we wouldn't have done it. So the work around shifting diets, it's easy to say, you know, we, people should reduce their consumption of meat, especially ruminant meat, but how do you actually make that happen? So the work of the Better Buying Lab, where we're kind of leveraging um, marketing strategy, behavioral economics that are used um, regularly by the private sector, um, to use those for good is one good example. Um, the food loss and waste and reducing that, I mean, our champions, 12.3 initiative, which is commitments um, by executives, champions, states, countries, research organizations to move that forward um, is another good example. But I sort of want to end by just sort of saying it's also the individual. Um, you know, have a look at the menu that we've laid out. Ask yourself, you know, what can I do to advance these menu items? Um, what kind of food am I eating? You know, can I reduce my meat consumption? We didn't say no meat. We just said reduce it, particularly ruminant meat. Um, am I contributing to food waste? Um, how is my food produced? Am I asking questions about that? Um, do I look at how this government um, spends this enormous farm bill subsidies? Um, have I talked to my elected officials about maybe some of that could be put, um, used in a way that um, is more consistent with the, the menu or action items that we have here? So thank, thank you Thank you question. very much. Um, Rich, I'm going to turn to you for any parting thoughts and then offer, offer our lead author, Tim, the final word. Sure. I mean, just building on, on what Janet said, the nice thing about our menu, that five-course menu, is not everything is for everyone, but there's something for everybody. So no matter if you are you know, government official or you're working in somewhere in a, in a food business somewhere along the supply chain, or if you're an individual trying to figure out what you're, what you're going to have for lunch, there is something that, that you can do, and there's often multiple things that you can do to, to help um, move the world towards a sustainable food future. Just one quick thing on that. Just you, you said it very nicely this minute, Lawrence. You, you, you mentioned the win-wins. I mean, many of these things are on the menu for the food security. We should be doing them anyway. They come with these co-benefits for health, um, for improving the prosperity of poor farmers, 
um, for climate change, for water security reasons. For all those women in Africa exactly. who would really rather not have five and six babies, mm -hmm. right? Like to stay in school if the opportunities were there for them. Yeah. Tim. Yeah, I guess the only thing I'd add is it, it, all of this is true, and yet at the end of the day, probably the behavior of governance, uh, governments is going to be critical. First of all, only governments really can protect uh, forests. Even we need private companies to demand that the, that the food come from forests, uh, from agriculture without clearing forests. But at the end of the day, governments have to do that. And in the short term, our, one of the things we're thinking about is trying to identify institutions that are willing to take ownership of each of these different menu items, uh, some of which are uh, quite specific. So for example, uh, there's an opportunity to breed variations of rice that emit less methane. But no one is really taking that as a responsibility. So that's the kind of thing that a single government with a, uh, a research budget could really uh, push along. And then there are other things like this linkage between uh, yield gain and forest protection. This everyone would have to do, but this is the type of thing that the World Bank should incorporate into its agricultural assistance programs. So one of the things we're hoping is that we can identify entities or groups of entities that will accept responsibility for moving along these different menu items. Thank you all very much. Um, I'm a huge admirer of this work. Um, I hope that our listeners will be inspired to uh, read the synthesis report, or at least the remarkable three-page summary. And um, I believe it's Janet, Rich, and Tim, and uh, Craig Hansen, who's not with us today, are co-authors of a wonderful blog. Our blogs at WRI are usually about 800 words. This one, um, the title says it well, How to Sustainably Feed 10 Billion People by 2050 in 21 Charts. So if you're a busy person and you want to get the big takeaways, um, I urge you to read this blog, and we will link to it from the blog that introduces this podcast. Um, thank you all so much for joining us. My guests today have been uh, Janet Reganathan, Vice President for Science and Research at uh, WRI, Richard Waite, Research Associate, and Tim Sertiner, who is the uh, lead author of this remarkable study, The World Resources Report, Creating a Sustainable Food Future, a menu of solutions to feed nearly 10 billion people by 2050. Thank you all so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. I'm Lawrence McDonald. This is the World Resources Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher and iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcast. Thank you for listening.